Those words were spoken at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, the church where Dr. King served as pastor for six years. And those were words of love to be lived out in troubled times. Those words were put to the test in 1968. 1968 was a very troubled year. 1968, uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, Robert Kennedy was also assassinated that same year. The country was being torn apart by racial tension, by riots in the streets, political polarization. The sexual revolution was in full swing. And yes, there was a pandemic that year that killed over a million people worldwide and claimed over 100,000 American lives. If any of that sounds familiar, uh, then you're listening to me because the similarities between 1968 and 2020 are obvious. So obvious that news outlets like the Washington Post, the Atlantic, even the Japan Times have correlated the two years together. And what we learn from this is that what we're facing right now in our nation is not anything new. We've been here before. And the same questions we're asking now were questions that our parents or our grandparents were asking in 1968. Questions like, what is happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why, what is God trying to tell us? How, how are we to respond? Questions like, will we ever get to peace again? And I want you to know that God has answers to those questions. And we find those answers in God's Word. Amen? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to open up the Bible. And we're going to see what God has to say. Well, get your Bible out. I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be landing today, Ephesians chapter 2. And as I told you last week, the Apostle Paul is in a, a prison in Rome. And he is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. church at Ephesus was a very diverse church. Uh, Ephesus itself was a very diverse metropolitan city. And so the theme of the letter is really the theme of unity. Unity in the church, unity in our marriage, uh, unity uh, among differing groups. And so that's what he's talking about in the book. But we're going to dive into chapter 2. Now for some of you that know your Bible, you're like, oh, Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, you're already rubbing your hands because you love you some Ephesians 2. All right, you love that. You just love what it teaches. There's so many rich truths in Ephesians chapter 2, like that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not a result of works as any man should boast. I mean, we love Ephesians chapter 2, but Ephesians chapter 2 does not end in verse 10. There's actually more to it, starting at verse 11. And from 11 to the end, what he's talking about is how we get to unity when we are so divided. One scholar said that Ephesians 2 is probably the great ecclesiastical passage because it teaches us God's dream for the church, God's vision for the church, what he wants from us when we're living in a very divided and hostile world. That sounds like now, doesn't it? So this is a incredibly relevant, incredibly important uh, passage we're going to be looking at today. Ephesians chapter 2, 
Uh, let's just dive right on into it. If you're with me, say amen. This is the word of God. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now stop right there for just a minute. Uh, circle the word remember. He, he's, he's talking to these Gentiles in this church, and he's saying, hey, I, I want you to remember what your life was like before Christ. A Gentile is someone who's not a Jew, okay? Someone who's born uh, outside of the Jewish race and promise and outside the Jewish covenants. Now, this is really important because up to this point, up to, up to this point in human history, God has always worked with the Jewish people. I got to do a little quick review that God called out a man named Abraham out of a very pagan uh, place, a very pagan people. He called him out and he gave him a promise. He said, I- I'm going to be your God and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And not only am I going to make you through a great, into a great nation, but all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. All right? That's Genesis chapter 12. And then you go uh, a couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, and God actually makes a covenant with Abraham. Theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. And in this covenant, God makes promise that not only is going to make him a nation, but yes, they're going to spend about 400 years in, in bondage, in, in uh, slavery. God's going to call them out, and he's going to bring them back to this land, and he's going to give the land to them, and they are going to be a light. And by the way, through all of that, God called them to be separate. That they were not to be like the nations of the earth. They are not to follow their gods. They're not to follow their customs. They're not to intermarry because that would draw them into that. Instead, they are to be separate. They are to be different. They are to follow his law, his covenants, his commands, worship him alone. And why is that so important? Because through their distinction as a people of God, they are now to point the whole world back to who the real God is and how to know and worship him. In fact, that was God's purpose. In in Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You get that? That God's whole point, God's whole plan, was that through the nation of Israel, that in their distinction and their worship of God alone, that they would be a light pointing people to the one and only God and why he is the only one to be worshipped. That was God's plan. However, Israel failed in that mission. Their distinction turned into hostility. Their difference turned into alienation of all the other nations around them. Even today, the the angst, the tension between Jews and Gentiles is still around. We still see it. We still read about it. We still experience it today. It was hostile. Still is. And Paul is reminding these Gentile believers, hey, just remember what you were like before you came to Christ. Man, you, were, you didn't know Jesus. You didn't know the Messiah. You didn't have God's promise. You weren't in the covenant. Uh, you, you were outsiders completely. You had no hope. You had no God in the world. Listen, you can't get any worse than that. Will you agree with that? That's as bad as it gets to be so separated 
from God and so separated from God's people that there's hostility toward God, hostility toward God's people. That's where he said you were at. But then look at verse 13. This is when it turns. This is when it gets good. Verse 13. But now, by the way, you need to circle that in your Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. You know, in the uh, Jewish temple that Herod had rebuilt, Herod had remodeled, this is the temple that Jesus knew, the temple that Jesus taught in, there was an outer courtyard called the Court of Gentiles. This was a place where all the Gentile, those who sought God, that were God-seekers, God-fearers, could come to the court of the Gentiles and they could hear about the testimony of this one true God that the Jews know and love. And yet Herod expanded it and turned it really into kind of an outdoor mall, all right? You thought South Lake had the first outdoor mall. No, you know, Herod had one of those things, all right? And he had little outdoor malls where you could buy stuff and where the money changing happened. This is where Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple by turning all that upside down. That happened in the court of the Gentiles. And uh, the Gentiles could come and they could hang out, but they could never go into what would be considered the holy part of the temple to worship God. There was a clear demarcation that if you're not Jew, you can't come in here. And that demarcation was a wall. And on that wall, there were signs. Those signs were written in Latin and in Greek. And in Latin and Greek, basically it said, do not enter. Beware. You're not allowed. And then it went on to say something like this, those who enter through this way have only themselves to blame for their ensuing death. Not very seeker friendly, I would say, right? Pretty hostile. I mean, you don't get much more hostile than that. You're going to die if you come in here. If you come through this line, you are, we're going to kill you. And even the apostle Paul nearly died because they thought he brought a Gentile in there and they drug him out of the streets to kill him. I mean, there was so much hostility here. And yet what Paul is saying is when Christ came, he came to bring down that wall of hostility. How did Jesus come to, to tear down the walls of hostility? We'll just uh, keep reading. Look at verse 14. In his flesh he made uh, of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might, get this, he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put to, uh, the hostility to death. Now, you get what he's saying here? He's saying that in the cross of Jesus, he did something completely new. Now, by the way, if you put yourself in the early church mindset, this is mind-bending, okay? This is totally different than anything else. There's always been hostility, always separation. He said, no, through the, through the cross of Christ, God's doing something new. He's taking both these groups that are at war with each other, and he's bringing them together. He's creating something new, one new man, one new people, one new group. They used to be hostile toward one another. Now they're one. They're, they're reconciled. How do you do that? By causing the law to be of no effect. All the regulations, all the distinctions, right? Christ fulfilled that. Christ fulfilled the law. And through the fulfillment of the law, we begin to realize that it was never the law that could recon reconcile us to God anyway. 
I mean, none of sacrifices could make a man right with God. It was all a foreshadowing of the one sacrifice of Christ. And so he said, man, I'm taking these two groups that are at war, and I'm making them one. And not only is he doing that, but he's also reconciling both Jew and both Greek to God. See that? One with each other and one to God. Both the Gentile and both the Jews are reconciled to God through faith and not of themselves. That is his point. And that is so incredibly uh, shocking to the early church. <laughs> Wait a minute, time out. I thought I'm reconciled because I'm, I'm born a Jew and I kind of go through the mode. No, no, no. No, you need to be reconciled to God through faith, just like that Gentile right over there that you hate. And so there is this incredible uh, shift in what God is doing that he's creating one new man out of the two. And now look, I want you to see the difference, the difference that the cross makes, right? This is, this is incredible. He's, he's telling us the difference that Jesus makes now. Uh, look, at, look at verse 17. He says, he came and he proclaimed good news of peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole building being put together grows in the holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You get what he's saying there? He's like, okay, before you were hostile, before you hated each other, before you were alienated, now Christ is bringing you together this way, both, uh, both horizontally and, and reconciling us this way, both vertically. That happened at the cross. I find it very poignant that the cross was made of two beams, horizontal and vertical, right? Because that's what he's doing. He's reconciling us this way with God and this way with each other, breaking down the walls of hostility. And he said, now we got this new peace. <laughs> we got peace that the world can't give. We have, we have a peace. Look at what he says. He says, now you're no longer foreigners. and You're not outsiders. You're not like, well, we don't, we don't accept you anymore. No, no. You're all of a sudden part of God's family. You are family together. You're not only you're not outside of the nation of God. You're now a part of the people of God. You have a citizenship in heaven. And then he kind of just stumbles into like this temple language. I think probably because that wall of hostility was in there. He was thinking about the temple. And he said, it's just like there's this new temple. I, did you know that still today the Jewish people believe that God's, what they call divine presence, lives in the temple, in the stones of the temple. That's why they, that's why they pray on, the, on the, that western wall, because they believe that's as close as they can get to the divine presence of God that lives in the rocks. And, and so he said, listen, it, it's as if God is creating this new temple, and, and the foundation is laid with Christ as a cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation, and now we are being built up. Like living stones, Peter says. And, and we're not like bricks where we all are shaped alike and look like we're all different shaped stones, but we're all fitted together to make this temple where the Spirit of God really dwells. He really dwells within the people of God, not some building somewhere. And, and that, that people of God is going to do what Israel can never do, and that is finally be a light to the nations. Your distinctions and yet your oneness in Christ will be the demarcation of the truth to the nations. The nations will look at that and go, wow, how does that happen? There must be a God. That's why Jesus said, you 
are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Folks, this is, this is, this is huge truth that we need to understand about why Jesus did on the cross. Now, having said that, what does that mean for us? I'm going to pivot here for a minute. What does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for 2020? What does that mean for right now? What does that mean for this week? Let me give you a statement. Reconciliation is not something we must achieve. It is something we must believe. In other words, reconciliation is not something, well, we've got to really work for that. We've got to really work. Maybe we can create reconciliation. Maybe we can get everybody to the table. Maybe we can make everybody love one another. We can just work hard enough. We can achieve that. No, no. We can't achieve that in and of ourselves. Only Christ can give us that, and that already happened. It's already taken place. The, the ability to be changed and to love one another, even though we come from so many different backgrounds and so on, has happened in Christ. All that is in Christ. So it's something we need to believe, and we need to live out. And the reason why we need it is because we have dividing walls of hostility even now. We have many, many dividing walls of hostility that separate us from other people, even other followers of Jesus. One of those dividing walls of hostility is skin. I was on a plane about two weeks ago, and I sat down next to a, a young lady. She had a T-shirt on. And on the T-shirt, the, uh, where the words was the word melanin. And uh, uh, if you know, uh, melanin is a pigment in your skin that determines how dark or light you are. I am severely melanin-deprived, all right? Like, I'll walk out with shorts like, ah, you know, my eyes are burning. You'll put, put pants on, right? Because I am severely uh, melanin-deprived. And she had this T-shirt on melanin. So I, I, I did a little research. I talked to a couple of friends of mine this week, and uh, one of them was explaining to me. He said, Craig, do you understand what that shirt means? I'm like, well, I know what melanin is. That, that's all I know. He said, well, here's what you need to understand. In certain, in certain uh, groups, certain uh, cultural uh, groups or ethnic groups, he said, the thought is that uh, if you have a lighter skin, then, then lighter skin is more beautiful, it's more acceptable, it's more desirable than darker skin. So if your skin is darker, you feel less than. And so even, even within those groups, there's a lot of feeling of uh, uh, less than, a feeling of... Um, not as good because of just the pigment of my skin, just how much melanin is in my skin. And so he said the, the, the melanin tease is really to just remind us that, hey, just the way God made you, no matter how much melanin is in your skin, doesn't matter, that you're beautiful to God just the way he made you. And I thought about that, you know, just the color of our skin, whether you're black or you're brown or you're, or you're white or whatever the color of your skin is, has been in many, many times a dividing wall of hostility. Literally, a dividing wall of hostility even in our nation. But you think about the word skin. Skin is just any surface covering, right? So you can skin lots of different things. You can skin your computer. You can skin your car. You can skin a building. You can put things on there. So there are lots of skins, right, in our culture that, that, we, that identify us. So your, your skin may be where you went to school, right? And, and there's hostility, right? Just go to OU Texas game, right? You can see some hostility, some dividing walls of hostility there, right? 
or, or it may be your, yeah, your ball team, or it may, be, it may be your socioeconomic status, or it may be um, your political party, or it, or it may be you just go on and on and on and on. What, 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 how, you, what, how you dress, where you live, what you drive, all these things become dividing walls by which we despise one another if you're not just like me. Dividing walls of hostility that sometimes even move into violence. And I'm not, this is not just an American issue. This is a worldwide issue. This is a historic issue. This is a humanity issue. This goes all the way back to the beginning. At the core, it is a sin issue, not a skin issue. Dr. King, in one of his famous sermons, said this, for the person who hates... The beautiful becomes ugly and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true becomes false and the false becomes true. That is what hate does. You can't see right. The symbols of objectivity are lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. And there, there are groups right now all around the world that are stirring up hate, stirring up division, stirring up division, stirring up hostility against one against another. And even Dr. King experienced this personally himself. It, when he was at work, there were people both in the, in, the, in the black community and the white community that despised him because of his message. Because they were so polarized, they, they couldn't hear his message. They couldn't see the vision of what God wants for there to be peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Christ came to reconcile us. Yeah, I was talking to a friend this week and he was telling me a story about going to a family reunion. And uh, he got to this family reunion. He didn't really know anybody there. He hadn't been in a long, long, long time. He, he wasn't really in contact with all these uh, distant relatives. And so he pulled up, he felt a little awkward, very much like an outsider. He kind of stood by his car. And finally, uh, a woman came up to him, and she said, hey, are you, uh, are you Clyde's boy, and Clyde's son? And he said, yeah. And she goes, oh, I thought, I thought that was you. She said, my name is so-and-so, and, and I'm your cousin. And, and then she gave him a hug. She said, come on in. Let me introduce you to the family. And he said in, in a moment, he was alienated, outsider, don't really want to be here. Uh, everybody looking at me like, what is he doing here? I don't know him. So all of a sudden, I'm, a, I'm in the family. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Before Christ, we were all, had these dividing walls of hostility, all alienated from God, alienated from each other, hate prevailed. And then when Christ came, all of a sudden, he, he said, you're family now. We're all family. It doesn't matter what your color of your skin is. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you're from. None, none of these things matter because you are one in Christ. This is why he says that very thing in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to these words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is these distinctions that separate us, that cause hostility, distinctions of ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, distinctions of socioeconomic status, slave or free, the distinctions of gender, male or female, all these things that are dividing walls of hostility even today. He said, these things do not matter anymore. We don't war about them anymore. It doesn't mean those distinctions go away, but it simply means that they don't matter. What matters more than that is that we're one in Jesus Christ. We're family together. So we love one another. 
we're at peace with one another. We embrace one another. I, re- I really saw this most clearly when I was in uh, I was in Oklahoma City. I've told you this story before, but it's a very, very diverse area, very, uh, very urban setting. Uh, there's a strong uh, black community. There's a strong Hispanic community. There's a strong uh, Asian uh, uh, Vietnamese community there. There was. Uh, there was very much socioeconomic disparity. There were those who had money and those who were homeless. And, and so it was a very, very diverse church and every reason for us to just be separate, maybe even distrusting of one another. And yet we began to pray and God began to move and we started seeing all just kinds of people from all different backgrounds coming together to worship Jesus and love one another. It was a beautiful thing. And I remember we, we planted multiple churches, mostly language-based churches that spoke in Spanish and Korean and Vietnamese. And so they were all over the church. And so in between services, all the people in the hallway just looked like the UN, right? We, you would hear multiple languages, all different. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. And I remember we, we said, hey, let's have a special service. So we did this every year around Thanksgiving time where we would take Lord's Supper together. All these groups would come together and we would take the Lord's Supper and different groups would do different, sing a different song or dance a certain dance or whatever, but it was all to Jesus and we were loving it and celebrating one another and celebrating our unity in Christ and then we would take the Lord's Supper and it'd be translated into four or five different languages and we'd all take it together as a sign of our unity in Jesus and then uh, at the end of the service we would sing one song and we would all sing the song but we'd sing it in our own language and so we were lifting up one song of worship to our king and and yet all the different languages all the backgrounds and I thought you know what this is what heaven's going to be like it was like a little taste of heaven right there you know Jesus said uh, in his prayer in the Lord's prayer he said father Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it going to take for us, the church, to be loving each other on earth as we will love each other in heaven? What's it going to take? See, unity, racial reconciliation, other kinds of reconciliation that we have, the dividing walls that are torn down um, that only happens in Jesus and he has done it he has done the work we just have to believe it and we have to live like it so let me close with a couple of simple thoughts about that what does that mean for you I mean it's just a simple challenge I've been wrestling with this all week thinking just introspectively in my own heart about how this applies to my life a couple of things first thing is this I want to encourage you this week as you see all that's happening around us, I wanna encourage you this week to take inventory of your own heart. And I want you to ask God, God, are there any uh, dividing walls of hostility in my own mind still from how I was raised, where I grew up, uh, just my own perception of people? Is there any residue of racism in me? Are there any particles of prejudice in my life? Are there any things that are in me that I, I, I immediately categorize a whole group of people one certain way or, I, or I, I have angst toward a group of people because of the way they dress or the way they act or whatever the case may be. Just God, search my heart. 
Remember back in the 80s when President Reagan, some of y'all remember this, some of y'all are too young to remember this, uh, you know, he, he told uh, Gorbachev, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, bring down this wall of division in Germany. We need to pray that prayer, Holy Spirit, bring down this wall. Whatever is in me, that where I view someone other than seeing them as as either lost and needing Jesus or saved, now they're my brother and sister. Any other distinction than that, God, bring down that wall in my own heart. Second thing is you need to pray. Pray for people that are not like you. Pray for people that are different than you. If they don't know Jesus, then pray that they will come to know the gospel, the hope and the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Pray that they will be saved. And if they do know Christ, pray for them like they are your family. Pray for them like they're your son or your daughter, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, because that's exactly what they are in Jesus. And then lastly is this. I want to encourage you to live out the gospel. It's one thing for us to declare what the gospel is. The gospel, we're saved, we're reconciled to God through faith. Yeah, we get that, but are we living that out? Do people see that we embrace people that are different than us because in Christ we are one in Jesus, we're brothers and sisters, we're in the family? Do people see that? Do they see you embracing? They see you loving those that are of a different ethnicity or those that are of a different socioeconomic race or those of a different political persuasion? Do they see you loving your brother or your sister? Because your life is the most powerful apologetic for the gospel. Because people out here are going, we're a war and hate and division, that's all we know. And if they can look in the church and see Christians loving one another, that would be radically different and beautiful and attractive. Do they see it in your life? Ask God to show you how you can live this out in your own friendships, in your own relationships. Dr. King made this statement in the sermon I quoted earlier. He said, that's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem or to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. It's the power to change. Would you close your eyes, bow your head for just a moment? This is really what the cross is all about, the power of love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. God demonstrates love toward us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is all about God's love. And it's his love that overcame hate and division and hostility. It's his love and sacrifice that made it possible for you to be reconciled to God and finally to have peace with your brother and your sister. For those walls of division and hostility to be brought down. And maybe you're here today and you just you just realize you've got a lot of walls of hostility in your life. And my friends, they're never going to go away until you're at right with God. You're at peace with God. Then he gives you the ability to be at peace with others. That when you experience the love of God, 
then you can truly love your brother or your sister who is different than you. And as a church, we can truly be a light to the nations. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ. You've never had a moment where you asked Jesus to come into your life and to save you, to change you. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Maybe even as I've been talking, Spirit of God's been stirring in your heart. You go, man, I just need, I need to be right with God. I need to be saved. I need to be changed. My heart is wicked and dark, and only Jesus can make it different. Only Jesus can clean me on the inside. And right now, you know right now that you need Jesus in your life. I want to pray for you. Just with your heads bowed, I'm going to call you out in any way. But if you lift up your hand, say, Pastor, pray for me. Just lift up your hand that I will pray for you that you would be right with the Lord. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody here? Thank you. Just lift up your hand again. All right. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? Maybe you're online and right now the Spirit of God is just touching your heart that you need Jesus. Even where you are, you can lift up your hand. God sees it. God knows your heart. It's an admission of your need for Him. I want to lead you in a simple prayer, just so just pray with me. Dear Father, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead. And I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Take out hatred and hostility in my heart. Flood my heart with love and your peace. And Lord, help me be a light this week the light of the gospel to people who desperately need it. Today I choose to follow you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room. God, I pray that as we leave here that we would be be changed people and that the change would be evident in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, the way that we love. Lord, I pray this week that when there is um, opportunity to talk negative, (laughs) that we would be silent. When there's opportunity to talk in love and peace, we would be loud. I pray, Lord, that we would be agents of peace, your peace, that people would see the difference, Jesus, you have made in our lives, and that we would love our brothers and sisters as you love us, that we would be one, just as you pray we would be one, and we would be light to the world that desperately needs the gospel. So fill us with your spirit now, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.